Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. This morning we want to look at this fifth seal judgment. Draw with your eyes down Revelation chapter 6. And I want you to take a moment and begin reading with me in verse number 9. I'll read it aloud as you read it quietly to yourself. But in verse number 9 and following, And when he had opened the fifth seal, keep in mind this is the Lord Jesus opening the seal. This is a judgment, a seal judgment. When he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord? Holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? The right robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest for yet a little season, until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. These three verses encapsulate the fifth of God's seal judgments that will one day occur. Notice in your notes, last week we examined the first of four seal judgments, Revelation 6, 1 through 8. These are the four horsemen that were there. This week we will examine the fifth seal judgment. At first glance, it would seem that this seal judgment really is martyrdom. And you can see there these individuals seem to be dead. They have been martyred. But it does not seem to be in line if the fifth seal judgment is martyrdom, it does not seem to be in line with this judgment being from God. Is God pouring out judgment on His children? That's your second blank there. Is God pouring out judgment on His children rather than the evil world? And some look at the fifth seal and they say that's the judgment, it's martyrdom. Well, if it is martyrdom and that's the way one's going to look at it, then we're actually saying that God's fifth judgment is being poured out really upon His children as opposed to on this evil world. Rather, it really should be seen as a call for divine judgment. A call for divine judgment. Theirs, these martyred believers, is a call to the Lord. Here's an interesting word here. They cry, how long, O Lord, true and holy. If you mark in your Bible, you circle that word Lord. It's interesting. There's a number of words in your New Testament that use the word Lord. Um, I, I think of uh, uh, Kyrios is one of those. Adonai is one of those. But this one's different. Uh, this one is the root word by which we get the word despot. They're crying out to the despot, the Lord. And by that, they're calling out to the final authority. They're calling out to the supreme king. They're calling out to the only one that can aid and bring justice against the injustice that they have received. Theirs is a call to the Lord for divine action. How long, you'll note, how long. But not only they call him for divine action, these saints are calling for divine vengeance. Judge and avenge. Judge, verse number 10, judge and avenge. That's an interesting statement. Crying out to God that he would judge the evil and avenge them. Now it's interesting that the saints of this era are admonished in Romans to recompense to no man evil for evil. And in verse number 19, to avenge not yourselves. Well, there's 
evil that was done to the Apostle Paul. In fact, I think about the Lord Jesus. I think about Stephen. I think about Stephen being stoned. Lay it not to their account. Timothy, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter, uh, I guess it's 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul said at my first answer, no man stood with me. And he begged that the Lord would not lay it at their charge. But yet of Alexander the coppersmith, he said, he hath done me much evil. The Lord reward him. Um, Paul's there making reference to this coppersmith that he had done him, Alexander, had done Paul much evil. And then Paul was going to rest in the promise that God would avenge him. God would right the wrong. God would bring justice. Oh, how Christians would be far better for it even today if we would allow the Lord to right the wrongs that were done unto us. Now listen, I have to say this. I'm not talking about criminal activity. But I'm speaking of those interactions that are often had one believer to another. And someone has mistreated you. Someone has done you wrong. Oh, how we would do well to forgive and allow the Lord to do what he does best. Judge and avenge. Now simultaneously, not only are we told to recompense no evil and not to avenge ourselves, but simultaneously we preach the gospel of peace. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 5. And it is the gospel of peace. It's the only way you can have peace with God. It's the only way that you can be in peace in this life. And it's the only way in this life that you can have access to the very throne of God. In a unique fashion, these saints here in Revelation, uh, these saints are praying. And they're praying imprecatory prayers upon their persecutors. Uh, some time ago, we were in chapter 5, and I'll just make reference of this quickly. I'll read this verse. Chapter 5 and verse 8. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayer of saints. I'd mention to you what's going on here. I said, what are these eternal prayers that are given? Is it the fact that uh, living people are now praying to dead saints? No, that can't be the case. I rather think that these eternal prayers directly correspond to some of the prayers of the Psalms. And really the Psalms were given by inspiration of God. Our prayers find their most potent value when they're placed in the promises of God. Isn't that true? You can pray all day, but the Scriptures admonishes you that if we ask according to His will, He heareth us. I would submit to you these imprecatory prayers that are being prayed are none other than within the realm of what God desires in life. And how do you know what God desires? You have the Word of God. So I think these prayers, when I speak of imprecatory prayers, it's not just the singular thought that they're praying randomly. They are praying by the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God, and they are praying the very words that are found, as we'll see in just a moment, in Scriptures. God's judgments when His people pray, and they pray according to His will, God's judgment will surely be moved in response to the cry of His saints. Remember Zechariah chapter 1, down about verse 15, 16, 17 um, here Zechariah has these eight visions in one single night. He has these eight visions. And his, his first vision, he sees uh, the angel of the Lord among the myrtles. And he asks, what meaneth these things? 
And later in the coming verses, it's explained that these are those that God has sent forth and that the whole world is at peace. And yet the city of Jerusalem, God's city, lies in ruin. And Zacharias, he's interacting here with the angel of the Lord and the messenger angel that is with him. It's brought on that the angel of the Lord said how wrathful he was with those cities that had abused Jerusalem. He said, I wanted, I was just a little angry, but that they had taken great pleasure in the destruction of Jerusalem. I'll note, if God cared that much about a city, how much greater are you? God cares about how his people are treated. In fact, let me go out beyond that because we're talking of the context of how the world treats believers. God cares how you treat believers too. God most certainly cares how I treat believers. Peter even addresses that in 1 Peter chapter 5. Not being, he says, a Lord over God's heritage, but an ensample. God cares about how we treat each other. When I come into the house of God and I walk into the church doors, I should note that we have set aside this place as a place to worship. But my friend, I also have set aside this place that I might provoke one another love and, God, uh, love and good works, that I might care for one another. It's ought to be a holy place of hospitality to God's people, a haven, if you will, of glorious rest. But God's judgment will certainly be called upon. That's why really this fifth seal judgment is a direct reference of a call for continued justice. You might even say for divine justice. Let's back up just a moment as you're in Revelation chapter 6. And look, if you will, at this cry in verse number 10. They cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord? If you write in your Bibles, you circle those two words. You'll find those replete through the Old Testament. In fact, there are many of the Old Testament prayers and psalms to God. Uh, let's take just a moment. Hold your place here in Revelation and turn over to Psalm 13. Uh, we're not, I'm not going to go to all of these, but I've made a point in chapter 5 and verse 8. I mentioned how these prayers were the prayers of God's people as they prayed the Word of God. And I don't want to leave you empty on those. It's just not random prayers. And just like God doesn't hear random prayers today. Uh, the heathen world sends up random prayers all the time. Um, even as it relates to you and I. God hears our prayers, but he does not answer in the affirmative of all of our prayers. Why? Well, many times our prayers that we pray are not in harmony with what God wants. He's a sovereign God. And by the way, lest you think poorly of yourself, the Apostle Paul was in the same place, wasn't he? Remember that messenger in the flesh, that sickness? He said, how many times? Thrice. I besought God. And what was God's answer? You want to know another way to say that? No, I'm going to teach you how to live with this. That's what he's saying. So we can honestly say, why didn't God answer Paul's prayer? Because God had other plans and means for his life. God cared for Paul. And God saw that through this sickness was one of the great ways in which Paul would be conformed to the very image of Jesus Christ. God's not going to answer all your prayers in the affirmative. And one of the great reasons for that is we have a very difficult time in this body praying according to the spiritual will of God. We're at a deficiency, aren't we? His ways are not my ways and his thoughts are not my thoughts. 
So I'm praying to the best of my knowledge and the best of my hopes, but the best of me just ain't good enough. That's why I must be led of the Spirit of God, even as it relates to my prayers. Look at Psalm 13. I want you to notice these verses here. Psalm 13, this is a Psalm of David. Through inspiration, how long, he's praying, how long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? Forever? This is David. Can God forget David? Now this is David's humanity crying out. It's preserved. One day I think this will be one of those psalms that's later prayed by the tribulational saints. How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? He just finished up four tribulation judgments, those first four of the seal judgments, the persecution, the dispensational saints occurring. Where are they going to go to look for comfort? Where do you go to look for comfort? You go to the Word of God. And often cases, particularly the Psalms. They'll read over the Psalm 13, How long, O Lord? You want to tell me that knowing what we know about the future, that verse number 2 will not resonate deeply within their heart? You're being persecuted. A few places to hide. The adversaries abounding. The world is uniting in blasphemous unity against your God. How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Lighten mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. This is just one of many. We go to Psalm 35 and verse 17. In fact, look at another one, Psalm 54. Look at Psalm 54 and verse 5. Tell me this one in those tribulational time frames be a place where the saint of God can put her soul. He shall reward evil unto my enemies. He shall cut them off in thy truth. Verse number four says, Behold, God is mine helper. The Lord is with them that uphold my soul. This call of how long it's used in many of these Old Testament prayers and psalms. It is most often associated with the cry and sufferings of Israel. Daniel cries it in chapter 18, how long? Habakkuk cries it as he sees the Babylonian empire and horde begin to descend on those people in Habakkuk chapter 1 and in Habakkuk chapter 2. It was the cry of the angel of the Lord as he stood among the myrtles to the Lord God Almighty. He said, how long will you allow Jerusalem to be trodden underfoot? Now, as we relate to Revelation chapter 6, there are some very obvious observations about the characteristics of these believers that were given um, attention here in these. So let me give you just a few uh, observations. Number one, these individuals in chapter 6 of Revelation, they are martyrs for the faith. They are martyrs for the faith. The word martyr comes from the root word, the idea. In fact, martyrs is a Greek word. And often, John chapter 1, sometimes it's the record. Sometimes it's the witness. And these individuals, because of their faith in Jesus Christ, have been killed. These individuals were believers that paid an ultimate price for the truths of God's Word. As such, white robes were given unto them. Time will not allow us to go back to Revelation chapter 2 and 3 and discuss 
the account of the overcomers that were given white robes, but it's in keeping with this. Another observation that can be made in number two is that these are tribulational saints. These are tribulational saints. In keeping with Matthew 24 and the previous verses here in Revelation chapter 6, these believers were saved. S-A-V-E-D. I'm going to let you catch up for a second because this parenthesis is of great importance. They are saved. How are they saved? By faith. No era is saved any different than faith. How was Abraham saved before the law? By faith. How was Moses saved during, well, just before the law, really? By faith. How was David saved? By faith, by faith, by faith. How was Adam saved? By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. You know, hear some folks talk about these, these tribulation saints. They're going to be saved by works. It won't be. It won't be. If they're saved by works, then they're not saved at all. They're saved exclusively by faith. However, this is an important thing here. They're saved after the rapture of the saints. This is amazing. So, let's answer the question. Can people get saved after the tribulational time? Yes. They can. That's how these people got there. Now, we can go into a lot of nuances with that. But there will be a lot of people coming to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ during the tribulational period. However, I submit to you, and though this is light on Scripture here, in keeping with Thessalonians and other places, it would seem to me that there will be a hardening of the heart of those that had previous to the rapture heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, insomuch that they would believe a lie. So what are you saying? I'm saying I feel, and again, this is light on verses. There's not a lot of scripture about this. But I would think it feels to me, keeping with Thessalonians, that those that really truly heard the gospel and rejected it on this side of the rapture will have passed their timeline. You can't be saved without the conviction of the Spirit of God. It's not your decision. God moves on the hearts of every individual at a specific time and sometimes times. And I have that opportunity to experience the new birth. But I can be dismissive of that wooing. I sat in a guy's living room once and watched him blatantly reject. And you could tell, I believe, the Lord working on him. These individuals get saved after the tribulation has begun after the rapture as well. Now, subsequently, because the New Testament saints already checked out, these rapture saints, or rather tribulational saints, they must endure a portion of the tribulation. Now, I don't know if these sealed judgment saints got saved before the first rider, or while the second rider, or third, I don't know. But they got saved sometime before this. And as a result of their salvation, they have to endure all of the hellacious events that will be upon earth. It's not as though there's famine everywhere, but at the tribulational Arab Baptist church, they have great, great amounts of food. All of the difficulties, the wars, the dangerous beast, they're going to have to live and deal with all of these things. Some of these tribulational sense saints will endure to the end. Daniel uses that express phrase in chapter 12 and verse 12. 
And those tribulational saints that endure to the very end of the tribulation, they'll be brought in into the millennial age and they will populate. They will marry and have children who will have children who will have children and it will be, Daniel said, blessed is that man. He's going to have children under a new era and dispensation in which this earth is just partitioned for a time outside of the curse. That's the time of the child, what is it, the lion and the lamb laying next to it, child entering their hand into the cockatrice den. What a marvelous time that will be. The question is, how did these people come to the saving knowledge of the gospel? Well, it's likely that many of these saints will have heard the gospel from the tribulational designated evangelist. That's Revelation chapter 7. Or from the remnant of biblical truth that has been left behind. I mean, you realize that if the trumpet sounds now and we all leave, there's going to be lots of Bibles present. I mean, plenty of them. These are tribulational saints. A third observation is that they will, not on, they will not be the only martyrs. There's a sad expression given here in verse number 11. He says that they should rest for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were. So this isn't the only martyrs that are going to occur. These verses clearly indicate that there will be additional believers that will be killed during the tribulational time. Revelation chapter 24, 20 and verse 4 speaks of this. It should be noted that these saints are exclusively martyrs. They're martyrs. These are not saints that grew old and died of a heart attack. These are not saints that fell off a bridge somewhere because they were driving too fast. These are all killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, at least one fashion by which they were killed will be beheading. And that comes again from Revelation chapter 24. John said, and I saw the, the saints that were beheaded. So many of them are going to be beheaded. A fourth observation is their souls. These believers are not in their resurrected body. And they will not be in there, and they will not receive their body until after a little season. Their resurrection occurs at the end of the tribulation. Again, I cite Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. Though we do not know the quantity, many of these saints will be Jewish. I've given you the reference for those. Let me give you a fifth observation. The reason for their death. The scripture indicates at least two reasons for their martyrdom to occur. Reason one, the word of God. They'll not only believe it, but they'll correctly interpret the events of this day. Can you imagine a host of blood bought saints that can keep track of events before they actually happen? You, you think the conservative Christian today is a burr in the side of a godless world? Wait until the end of days. They're going to believe and correctly interpret the events of the end times. But like the prophets of old, the truth they preach will be despised. Think of the end of, of uh, Hebrews chapter 11. They were, many of them, dwelling in mountains and caves. Many of these will dwell in mountains and caves as well. So how do you know that? Because in the Old Testament, when the day of the Lord starts, they're going to run to the mountains.
um, they'll be despised. B, A was the word of God. B is the testimony they held. They stayed loyal to the Lord and continued faithfully despite the present trouble. They're going to be steadfast, unmovable. I mean, these are going to be true blue. True blue. In addition to the wars, famine, pestilence that exist, it would seem then this is a worldwide persecution of believers. Satan has been given four doses of judgment and he's going to respond with grand evil. The resulting portion of God's fifth judgment will of course be his saints calling for divine judgment which he will hear and will avenge. This persecution begins in the first half of the tribulational period if not soon after its beginning. However, however, after the midway point, it will dramatically accelerate. Revelation 13 verse 10 mentions this. The heart, and by heart I mean the moral compass of humanity, of those without Christ will be hardened during this time. This fifth seal judgment is a call for divine judgment, a call for the vengeance of God. I'll conclude with a list of verses, but... Romans chapter 12 and verse 19. We cited this at the beginning. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give, uh, rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. That's Romans 12, 19. Well, where did he say vengeance is mine? We go back to the Old Testament in Deuteronomy. He says, vengeance to me belongeth vengeance and recompense. I will render vengeance to my enemies. I'll reward them that hate me. He will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries. Psalm 94, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongeth. Nahum 1-2, God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. 2 Thessalonians, Paul writing to the church on eschatological matters says of the Lord Jesus in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The fifth seal judgment is a call for divine judgment. Call for God. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.